So I'm going to be reading from uh, Acts 10, verse 1 to 16, and then skipping ahead to 34 and 38. Um, the printing is quite small in the bulletin, and that's what I'm reading from today. So if I stumble and stammer and can't see, um, I don't know, could we blame Megan? Is that a thing? <laughs> um, it is, I believe, the ESV version, if you're reading from, your, um, from a Bible app. I'll give you a few moments to find that, and then we'll begin. Acts 10, 1 to 16, and then 34 to 38. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel spoke to him, when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth, sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. And then we skip ahead to the verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, he went about doing good and healing, um, and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers among them, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they, were hearing, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. 
Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning. This morning we are continuing our sermon series through the book of Acts, which we just picked up again last week. And so far in Acts, we've been seeing the birth of the church, and um, first mostly among the Jews in Jerusalem, and then after the stoning of Stephen, this outward movement into Samaria and Judea. And today we arrive at the account of the conversion of Cornelius in Acts 10. Um, and if we've been paying attention to the pacing of the story uh, so far, we notice that Luke really slows down here in the narrative. Um, so far in the book of Acts, Luke has displayed an incredible economy of words. Um, he gives a flyover uh, account of, of events and then occasionally just zooms in on, on items of specific importance to highlight them. And in this section of the book, in chapters 8 to 9, um, Luke has really zoomed in on three particularly unlikely converts. In chapter 8, we saw the Ethiopian eunuch being converted by Philip. In chapter 9, as Pastor Paul preached last week, we saw uh, Saul or Paul being converted by Jesus himself. And now in chapter 10, we see Cornelius being converted by Peter. And it's curious that even within this unit, um, Luke spends just 14 verses on the conversion of the Ethiopian unit. And even with Saul, um, he spends just 19 verses. And those are major events. Certainly, with the, the Apostle Paul goes on to become arguably the most influential person in all of the New Testament. But on this event, Luke spends twice as much time as he did on the previous two uh, put together. He spent 66 verses, and I apologize to Bryce. Um, he, he only had to read half of them. <laughs> um, and so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to simply walk through this narrative together, unpacking some of the detail um, as we go. And we're going to, as we do that, we're going to seek to answer three questions um, that'll help us understand this a little better. First question is, who is Cornelius? The second question is, who is Peter? And the third question is, why does Luke give so much attention to this particular event? Or what's the significance of it? And then at the end, we're going to look back and consider what we can learn from this. We'll ask what God has been revealing about himself through this story, and what does it mean for you and I? All right, and there is a lot to talk about in this chapter, so let's just dive in. So first, we're looking at who was Cornelius. Verse 1, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. So Luke starts by introducing us to this man who lives in Caesarea. And Caesarea is a garrison city on the eastern shores of the Mediterranean Sea, about 35 miles north of the modern city of Tel Aviv. Um, it's named after the first Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus. And it was a naval port where military representatives of the Roman Empire were stationed to police the region uh, for the purpose of putting down any potential insurgency that might flare up. And in general, these Roman cohorts were famous for the 
merciless brutality with which they carried out this task. And so the Jewish people were, at this time, were really under the boot heel of people like Cornelius, because Cornelius is described as a centurion. Um, so he was a, a captain or a commander of this cohort. And centurions were men who had rose through the ranks by proving their undying allegiance to the Roman Empire by doing whatever they were commanded to do in its service. Um, he would have proved that he would be willing to die for Rome. For, and for them, uh, Rome was more than just a political affiliation. It was almost a religious one. The, the emperor was the god that they served with their whole being. And this cohort that Cornelius is in charge of is not just any cohort, but it's described as the Italian cohort. And there really isn't um, much concrete or, or comprehensive information about this unit, but uh, you can piece together scraps of information from a number of extra-biblical sources from the first few centuries. Um, and from that, we can kind of gather that this was an auxiliary cohort, um, probably larger than a standard first cohort, possibly up to a thousand men, so it's a big unit. It is, um, and it seems that the name derives from the fact that it was made up of freeborn Roman citizens from Italy. Um, these were men who were serving because they wanted to. They weren't conscripted. Um, unlike a standard cohort, which were often made up of um, people from the conquered provinces who were serving the military as a way to earn citizenship and their freedom from it. Um, so these men would not have had any sympathy for the provinces that they ruled over, the people that lived there. And all, all of this is basically to illustrate the fact that this is the kind of guy that Peter, a Jew, would have not wanted to be anywhere near. Right? I couldn't imagine someone that he would be less likely to want to be in the same room as. Um, but Luke goes on in verse 2. Cornelius is also described as a devout man who feared God with all his household and gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. Um, and we have to kind of consider what that means. Um, the Roman Empire was famously uh, syncretistic religiously. Um, when they conquered provinces around their, um, the Mediterranean region, they didn't discourage the practice of the local religions. They actually embraced them, provided your highest allegiance was to the Roman Empire. They thought, why not, you know, why pray to one God when you can pray to all these different gods and hopefully the right one will be on our side. Um, and so Cornelius being stationed there in Caesarea likely would have adopted the religious customs of the local uh, Jewish community. But it seems that there's more going on here. It doesn't seem like this is a man who's just going through the motions of the local um, religious establishment. Um, Cornelius seems to be pictured here as having a real profound and active uh, faith in the God of Israel. Um, God seems to have gotten a hold of him. And this is reinforced, I think, by the way, his messengers describe him to Peter later in verse 22. Um, they describe him as a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. So he was well respected by the Jewish community. They seem to think that his, at the very least, um, they seem to think that his faith was genuine. Um, and the term God-fearer was used as a semi-technical term uh, to describe non-Jews who followed Jewish religious customs 
um, and went to synagogue and potentially even kept dietary laws, but as a general rule, they weren't particularly sold on the idea of being circumcised. Um, and so despite all their piety, they could never be considered ceremonially, ceremonially clean or be able to be fully integrated into the Jewish community. So Cornelius was still a Gentile as a God-fearer. Um, and Gentile God-fearers were thought of and treated as outsiders, even within the religious community they subscribed to. So here we have this special centurion of this special cohort who's a, a Roman citizen who's very well respected. This is a man who is very used to being the ultimate insider, right? And he finds himself treated as an outsider in this community that matters most, in the covenant family of God. Verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. So the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m. Um, and this is a, in, in the Jewish custom, this was the time of the daily evening prayer and sacrifices. And uh, with Cornelius being described as one who prayed continually to God, it's likely that he was following these um, Jewish prayer rituals. And so it's likely during this customary time of evening prayer and sacrifice that um, Cornelius is met by this angel of God, as Luke puts it. Um, as Cornelius himself describes it later in verse 30, he says it's a man in bright clothing. Right? And this messenger of God walks into his home, comes into Cornelius' home and calls him by name. Right? Think about that. This is a guy who's on the outside right? He has this very, very special treatment. And this battle-hardened military commander is shaking his boots, right? It says that he stared at him in terror. But Cornelius makes no mistake about who this messenger is, or at least who he has been sent by, because he answers, what is it, Lord? And again, this Cornelius is not the kind of guy who would have been accustomed to calling anyone Lord, right? The term implies ownership, master, um, I am a servant, right? And this, for him, the Roman emperor was the only lord. But he submits to this divine visitor, realizing that he's from God, and he says, what is it, Lord? Um, so listen to the message that the angel gives him. Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. The angel says to him, all your efforts to pursue and to please God have not been in vain. Right? They have gone up into his presence. And they've not only been noticed, but the, the language here implies that like, if they're before God, if they're before the throne of God, that they have been accepted. So the implication here is that, that Cornelius' worship has been deemed acceptable and pleasing to God. This would have been mind-blowing for him, right? And the angel tells him, send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And the way it's presented here, that's like, that's it. And then he does it. So it's presented here that there was no questions asked, no answers given. Cornelius simply and unquestionably obeys. And he sends two servants and a soldier to protect them immediately out to Joppa to go retrieve Peter. 
end of scene. All right, so now we have a bit of a picture of who this Cornelius was. Now Luke, in the text, turns our attention to our second question, who is Peter? Um, and it's important to remember that Acts is actually the second of Luke's letters. Um, in a lot of ways, it functions as a sequel to the Gospel of Luke. And so Luke is assuming that his audience already knows a fair bit about who Peter is. So there's not a ton of background detail here. But for those of you who might not be familiar with him, here's a little bit of background for you. Peter is one of the 12 apostles who's been specifically and personally called out by Jesus to follow him, uh, to live with him, to learn from him for the three years of his earthly ministry. And then when Jesus, right before Jesus ascended, he commissioned these guys to go out and plant his church. All right, so, so Paul is one of these apostles. He's one of these leaders of the church. And among these apostles, there's no, there's no formal leader with a title, and yet um, Peter is given special priority among his peers by Jesus, and this is reflected in how others write and speak about him. When, Peter, uh, when Jesus first met Peter, he was called Simon, right? And John 1, um, first Andrew, Peter's brother, meets Jesus, and then he goes to get Peter and brings him. He says, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. This is John 1.42. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which Jesus spoke Aramaic. It was Aramaic for rock, and it gets translated into the Greek as Petros, which also means rock, from which we get the name Peter. So why does Jesus call him rock? Right? We have to go to a, another event where Jesus is talking to his apostles, his disciples, and he's um, he asked them, you know, who do people say that I am? And apparently there was a lot of confusion at the time about exactly who Jesus was, because they answer, uh, you know, some people say that you're John the Baptist, uh, other people say that you are Elijah, uh, still others say that you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And it's Peter who answers him. And Peter says this, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, which means son of John. Uh, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Peter was a big deal in the church. All right, he had an incredible amount of influence and sway. People look to him for leadership concerning the church and how to move forward. But remember at this time that Christianity was still predominantly a Jewish movement and Peter himself was a lifelong Jew. And so he uh, would have observed ceremonial purity laws. Most notably in this case, he would have kept kosher and only eaten certain foods. So some food would have been deemed clean, some food unclean. All right, so that sets the stage for this next section. We'll jump in at verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour, that's noon, to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending. 
being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals, reptiles, birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is uncommon or, or unclean, or something that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So like Cornelius, Peter is observing a customary prayer time, and God comes to him in a vision. And it seems that this sheet is lowered down from, uh, that on this sheet lowered down from heaven are all sorts of animals, both clean and unclean, mixed together. And this would have been like a major bummer for a hungry Jewish guy, because uh, by, by their contact and their intermingling, even the good animals to eat were unclean. So it was basically all spoiled in Peter's eyes, right? But the, the purpose of this vision isn't actually about food, primarily. God is using Peter's hunger to draw his attention to a bigger reality, right? He uses um, Peter's ritual uh, thinking about food and his eating patterns to uh, represent and reveal um, a general bias in his thinking, right? So just as um, in his desire to satiate his physical hunger, Peter couldn't uh, get past his belief that some foods were off limits, right? Some food uh, was just not allowed. Um, and so he couldn't satiate his hunger, right? Likewise, in his hunger and his desire to see the church grow and the kingdom of God realized on the earth, he needed to get past his prejudices and preconceived notions that Gentiles were off limits or necessarily excluded. So, this is what the vision is that comes to him, but Peter, uh, Peter's a little bit thick. So we notice Peter's first reaction to God um, and God's command to kill and eat in verse 14. He says, by no means, Lord. Right? This is a classic Peter response. God says something to him and he says, no, no, no. Um, <laughs> I know better. Um, but I think he speaks before he thinks. And I really, I kind of relate to him sometimes. Um, but consider three, three other quick examples from Peter's life, right? In Mark 8, when Jesus is telling his disciples what's going to happen to him, he's predicting that he's going to suffer, he's going to be rejected, and he's going to be killed. Um, Peter pulls him aside and rebukes him, right? And then Jesus turns to him, what does he say? He says, get behind me, Satan, right? For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. He's telling Peter, you, you don't get it. I am God and you are not. Right? In John 13, we see the account of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And he's going around the table washing everyone's feet and he gets to Peter and Peter's like, no way, Lord. Uh, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part with me. So Peter's like, all right, wash all of me then. Right? But his, his, his impulse was to deny the request. And then one final thing, in uh, Matthew 26, after this final dinner that Jesus has with his disciples, he predicts to them that they're all going to abandon him in his hour of need. And again, Peter thinks he knows better. Um, Matthew 26, 33, Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. 
Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Sadly, we know how that story ends. And Peter was wrong yet again. See, Peter has a history of being a slow learner. And that's why this vision happens three times. Um, but even then, he still doesn't get it. The text goes on to say that Peter is sitting there mauling over this vision, and he's inwardly perplexed. He has no idea what he's supposed to take away from this. Um, but then the Holy Spirit comes to him and says, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And so Peter, probably not knowing what else to do, goes out to meet them. And they explained that Cornelius had been told by an angel to send for Peter and to listen to whatever he had to say. So I imagine that, uh, I mean, Peter may have been expecting that the Spirit was going to speak to him again some point between leaving and arriving at Cornelius' house and telling him exactly what it is that he's supposed to tell Cornelius. But to his credit, um, he didn't have all the information and yet he resolved to go anyway. But it was too late that day to begin traveling back to Caesarea, so he invites them to stay the night, and they plan to leave in the morning. End of scene two. Okay, so now we know a little bit about who Cornelius is, and we know a little bit about who Peter is. Now, in the third and final act, we're going to try and understand what the point of all this is, what Luke is trying to tell us. All right, so the next day, Peter... Um, he, along with six of his fellow circumcised Jews from Joppa, he has a posse that he takes with him. Uh, they accompany these three men from Caesarea and head back towards Cornelius' house. And when they arrive there, uh, we see Cornelius has obviously been anxiously um, and excitedly awaiting their arrival because he's gathered a bunch of his family and friends together in the house. And as Peter uh, enters through the door. You have to imagine that Peter comes into Cornelius' house, has no idea what he's doing there, has no idea what he's going to say. He walks in, and Cornelius, this Roman centurion guy, drops to the floor at his feet and starts worshiping him. Right, so Peter just, you know, picks him up, and what are you doing, man? Like, I'm, I'm not God. I'm just a man. Um, and then he says to, uh, he says to Cornelius, this is the first thing he says. He comes into his house. He said, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Ouch. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So we see here that Peter, at some point between the vision and now, has at least put the pieces together that the vision was not about food but about people. Right? So he says, I've been shown by God that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. So he still doesn't know what he's doing there. And Cornelius responds by recounting his vision and what the angel had told him uh, to do and says this, so I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And you can almost see uh, Cornelius pulling up a chair, front center. He's ready to receive this message that God has prepared for him. And he's super excited about it. And Peter is still scratching his head about what it is that he's supposed to say, right? Um, 
But it seems like in that very moment, there, Peter gets this spiritual download because the way the text lays out, Cornelius says, we're here to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Very next verse, so Peter opened his mouth and out comes this message. He says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Imagine being Cornelius in that moment, right? Uh, this, this man desperately seeking God's approval, desperately trying to find a way to be included, to fit in, to be integrated. Um, sweeter words had probably never been spoken for him. Right here, it's the leader of the apostles preaching that he too was fully acceptable. He was fully clean. He was fully included. Peter goes on to preach uh, the basic contours of the gospel. He preaches the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he finishes it again with a commission and a proclamation that the gospel is for everyone. In 42, he says, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. His gospel presentation is sandwiched on either side with this radical statement that it is for everyone, not just the Jews. And Peter hadn't even finished speaking, and the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius and all of his guests. And the Jews that had come along from Joppa with Peter were like absolutely floored because these Gentiles start speaking in tongues and worshiping God exactly as the apostles had at Pentecost. Right? It was the very same manifestation of the Holy Spirit's presence. So it would have been absolutely unmistakable to them. Right? It was as though they were witnessing Pentecost all over again, except this time it was all Gentiles. And so Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. One day prior to this, Peter would not even have dreamed of stepping into Cornelius' home. Now he is baptizing him, agreeing to stay for an extended visit, sleeping in their beds, eating their food, fellowshipping with them. This is a radical uh, shift in Peter's thinking. And so let's just consider one final thing here then. If this story were really about, or really just primarily about Cornelius and some Gentiles hearing the gospel, then anyone could have done that. Right? The angel that appeared to him in his vision at the very beginning of the story could have preached the gospel to him. Right? That would have saved everyone a lot of trouble. Or how about Philip? Right, uh, we, after we read about um, Philip uh, baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch, he gets miraculously transported to Azotus, and then from there we read in verse 40 of chapter 8, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. And in Acts 21, Paul visits him in the city there, and we realize that and actually there he's called Philip the Evangelist. That's his title. And he lives in Caesarea with his four daughters. So Philip the evangelist lives around the corner from Cornelius, 
right? Surely he's capable. So why go through all the trouble of getting Peter to come all the way from Joppa to preach the gospel to Cornelius? God had orchestrated this divine appointment, not just to convert Cornelius, but in some sense to convert Peter. Right now, obviously, Peter was already a Christ follower. He already had the Holy Spirit. He was an apostle. Um, but he was still predominantly living and thinking like a Jew rather than a Christian. All right? And so if he was going to lead the church forward, he needed to understand this. He needed to understand that God shows no favoritism. He needed to understand that uh, the gospel is for everyone. He needed to have his religious pride and prejudice checked and eradicated. And so while the action of this narrative centers around Cornelius' conversion, I would suggest that Luke's purpose in telling this story and the Holy Spirit's purpose in telling this story in Scripture is far more about Peter. All right. So that's the end of that narrative. Now it's time for us to look back and consider what we can learn from this. Right at the beginning, I said that we would ask, uh, what is God revealing about himself through this story? And what does it mean for you and I? And the lesson that Peter learns in this story is the same one that you and I need to learn. And that is that God does not play favorites. He does not care about human classifications or categories. He does not distinguish between people the way that we do at all. When John shares his vision of the throne room of heaven in Revelation 7, he says this, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to God. It's not up to you or I to decide who is in and who is out. The blood of Jesus can wash anyone clean. If you are here today and you feel like an outsider, if you think that you don't belong here or that there's something about you or something that you've done or said or thought that uh, disqualifies you from receiving the grace of God, you are wrong. When God calls you his own, there is nothing that can separate you from his love. Romans 8 says it this way, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can bet on that. And if he's calling you like he called Cornelius, receive him. Don't hesitate. Now, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, who consider ourselves part of the church, I want us to ask ourselves some hard questions. Is there anyone in your life, anyone that God has put in your path that you have written off as too far gone or too disinterested to be reached by the gospel? What if God, like Cornelius, like he was preparing Cornelius to meet Peter. What if God was preparing them for you? Right? He knows their heart. You can only judge them based on their external criteria. 
Peter, from a distance, Cornelius was just another bloodthirsty Gentile Roman attack dog. But once he got up close and engaged with him, it became very clear that God had chosen this man and was drawing this man to himself. I, uh, I often blame my own lack of evangelistic zeal um, on the fact that our culture seems uniquely disinterested in the gospel. Right? But it's so easy to, to say our culture, right? people in general. That we just lump everyone into one category. Then it's really easy to write people off, but that's the easy way out. Who are the individuals in your life? Right? And Paul said this before. It is laughably easy for God to save the most hard-hearted rebel if he so chooses. But in his infinite wisdom, he has chosen to incorporate the willing participation of his people. Right? He hasn't saved you and I so that we can just kick it resting on our laurels until he returns. He has saved us to send us out. He has invited us into the story of the redemption of the world, and we have a role to play. And I know that it can be scary, and I know that it can be intimidating, but we have the power and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit at work in us. Peter went to Cornelius' house not knowing what, he was, what was going to happen, but he went in faith and trust, and the Spirit gave him the words to say. Right, lastly, um, after this event takes place in chapter 11, we see that Peter goes back to Jerusalem, and he's confronted by a number of Jews who are not happy about what he's done, and he has to justify his actions. And he says this, this is Acts eleven seventeen. If God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? What if instead of asking ourselves, who am I to preach the gospel to anyone? Surely there's someone better than me. Right? What if instead of asking that question, when an opportunity arises in our life, we were to ask, like Peter, who am I to stand in God's way? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your indiscriminate love and grace. Thank you for showing us in your word over and over again how salvation belongs to you and you alone. How our security is not held in human hands, but in your loving embrace. Lord, we pray your kingdom come and that your will would be done on earth, uh, here on earth as it is in heaven. And we long for that day to come. But there's still work to do here. Holy Spirit, give us the wisdom and the courage to share the gospel boldly until there is no one left who hasn't heard of your unfathomable love. In the name of Jesus, amen.